Hi, and welcome to the 80% Mental Podcast with me, Hugh Gilmore, and Dr. Pete Olusoga. Now, we have been uh, invited on to another podcast, and that is with Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition Radio and myself, and Pete came on and had a discussion about burnout with Danny. Pete, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I want to... First of all, thank Danny for inviting us on the podcast. Um, it was fantastic to talk about an area that I've actually done a lot of research in. It's kind of my area is, is burnout and well-being and high-performance coaching. So it was nice to be able to go on the podcast and talk about that from a research perspective and to get your perspective as well as a practitioner on how we might apply some of that stuff Um and you know for the for the benefit of high performance coaches and i think there's a lot of things in there that are translatable as well a lot of things that are transferable to other scenarios so you know we talked about um high performance coaching and some of the pressures being a lot like academia and being a lot like the world of business as well so there are a lot of lessons i think in that podcast that you know people outside of sport can really take from it as well yeah, I think you brought a lot of value bringing in the academic understanding and how that translates into, you know, not just coaching, but, you know, any other place or profession where somebody's under pressure. Uh, and look, like, let's not beat about the bush very close to home. A lot of people are under pressure with 2021 and COVID and everything else. So maybe there's something in there that actually might help you uh, just cope a little better and uh, go a little further and get through the next year. So uh, we hope you enjoy this episode with myself, Pete, and Danny Lennon. And just a shout out to Danny. Thank you very much for bringing us uh, onto the podcast. Um, Danny actually was the first person I ever did a podcast with, and he has over 300 episodes recorded, Pete. So he's kind of like the godfather of podcasts. And there is a hell of a lot of really interesting and useful guests for anybody who is interested in health fitness or performance on sigma nutrition radio so please do check them out hello and welcome to sigma nutrition radio i am your host danny lennon this is episode 350 of the podcast, and whether you are a long-time listener or maybe this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you do, then I'd love to ask you to maybe share word of the podcast around. It's the way that we are able to reach more people is through really just the word of mouth of those of you who regularly listen to the podcast. That is the main way we've been able to grow to the point where we're now at. So it's very much appreciated. So if you do end up enjoying this episode, either just tell a friend about it that they should listen, maybe email it across to someone, or even better, just take a screenshot of the podcast on your phone and post it up to your Instagram story or into Facebook or some manner where you can share it with the world and let them know that you think this might be useful those things are incredibly incredibly helpful as well as just on a personal level it's great to see people enjoying the content that is produced so thank you for those of you who do that each week so on today's episode i'm going to be joined by dr peter olasoga and hugh gilmore and we're going to be talking about the concept of coaching burnout 
We'll look at both the research on this from the psychological literature, as also talking about how this manifests within applied settings and looking at that from a psychological perspective. So Dr. Alasoga is a senior lecturer in psychology at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK, and his research has focused on stress, on burnout, and well-being within a sporting environment particularly focusing in on high performance sport and elite coaching roles. And we're going to see that in plenty of our discussion today. So Peter is also a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society. Hugh Gilmore is someone that you may remember from previous episodes on the podcast. I think he's been on at least a couple of times on the show before, and he is an accredited sports psychologist with a huge amount of experience in applied settings, working in elite sport within the UK. He's worked with elite athletes across a number of sports, uh, world champions, Olympians. For example, he's worked with the British weightlifting team in the lead up to the most recent Olympic Games, which of course now is the uh, Rio Games, as we've missed out this year, given the craziness that is 2020. And Hugh has a master's in applied sport and exercise psychology. And as I mentioned, he's also an accredited sports psychologist. And in addition, Peter and Hugh have just launched their own podcast, 80% Mental, where they're going to be deep diving into specific topics related to sport psychology. Now, I think this is a really fascinating topic one, on a general level, but two, particularly for the audience of this podcast, because as we start exploring what coaching burnout is, some of the characteristics and symptoms and how that is diagnosed, I'm sure many of you listening are going to start hearing things that are going to resonate quite a lot, either that you have experienced in the past, that maybe you are currently experiencing, maybe you've seen in others. And I think this is going to be incredibly insightful. And so if you have any type of coaching role, whether that's in elite sport or otherwise, I think there's going to be so many things here that are going to resonate. So with all that, let's jump into this fascinating discussion with Peter Alasoga and Hugh Gilmore. So I think maybe as a good jumping off point, just to give people that are listening some context, maybe I'll go to you, Pete, first. How would you typically introduce the area of work that you're involved in, some of your research interests, and anything that else that might be relevant to today's discussion? Well, I'm a, a senior lecturer in psychology. Uh, my area of, of research is in stress and burnout and well-being uh, in high-performance sport, but in particular with relevance to high-performance sports coaching. My PhD research was all around stress, anxiety, and coping mechanisms that high-performance coaches use. And then since then, my research has kind of branched out and focuses more on the areas of burnout and well-being. Well, uh, I'm nowhere near as academic as Pete. Uh, my background is in applied sports psychology, working with uh, Olympic and Paralympic athletes in the UK sport high-performance system, British athletics and British weightlifting. I suppose from my understanding today the area of coach and coach burnout is something that i haven't uh, researched but it's something i experienced on a daily basis is the demands of the coach uh, and working with coaches who are under those pressures so of course burnout is something i'm sure every listener has heard about in some format whether that's in a sport setting or outside of that but maybe 
Pete, can you give us a kind of definition of maybe burnout generally, but also then specifically as it applies to the coaching context here as well? I think the first thing is to to distinguish between physical burnout, which is a result of overtraining, and what we're talking about here, which is psychological burnout. The definition would really be an ongoing, enduring psychophysiological syndrome. And that just means that there are there are physical elements to it, but there are also psychological elements to it. And there are really three things that characterize this uh, syndrome. There's physical and emotional exhaustion uh, associated with just intense training and competition demands, and athletes experience this as well. There's what's called a reduced sense of personal accomplishment, and that's related to coaches really feeling like they're not achieving much anymore. It's almost like a sensation of feeling uh, related to their skills, their abilities, just feeling like you're not really achieving. And then there's something called sport devaluation, which is just a loss of interest, almost that kind of I don't really care about what I'm doing anymore type attitude towards the, the sport, not really seeing the benefits, the values of, of participating in sport. So those are really the three major characteristics that characterize this this syndrome of burnout i suppose as with any syndrome we can look at these various different symptoms that may lead us to a diagnosis of burnout but i'm just wondering and how do we distinguish when something is an a burnout event as opposed to someone just has a symptom that is one of these that we've just mentioned well i think that's inherent in the question that you just asked that you know you use the phrase burnout event and really this is experiencing all of these symptoms or a combination of these symptoms for an extended period of time so rather than the coach who's just you know a little bit tired or kind of a little bit fed up it's you know are they experiencing these three this collection of characteristics this collection of, of symptoms for that extended period it's really important to determine you know, in, in research as well as in practice what is burnout and what is just the ordinary day-to-day -day stresses of coaching because it is it is a stressful occupation it is a stressful job especially in high performance sport so we do need to be really careful in distinguishing between okay what's the normal day-to-day just stress of the job and what is burnout and it, it lies in these three specific characteristics that physical and emotional exhaustion reduced personal accomplishment and devaluation like i said that gets to the point of noting that there's probably an overlap between stress and burnout but there's also a disconnect between stress and, and burnout yeah absolutely and you know i think it it lies in there's a number of different ways of explaining burnout and one of the more widely used explanations is that burnout is actually a response to chronic stress. So in that case, it is it is separate from stress. So if you've been experiencing ongoing stress, burnout is a likely, well, I don't know if it's likely, but certainly a potential outcome of that. So speaking of the it being an outcome, what are the drivers that typically result in, in burnout? Again, I can talk to the research that I've done in this area, and I'm sure Hugh can come in with some some practical examples as well. But a lot of the key drivers or the key precursors for burnout are just the stresses of the sport. So, for example, the long, irregular hours that coaches have to put in. You know, some of the coaches that I interviewed for my PhD study were talking about working 25 weekends a year, being away from home, being up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning and finishing it eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. So there's long, irregular hours, time away from family, the isolation that goes along with that. It can often be quite a lonely role as a coach, again, in high performance sport. 
coaches often will prioritize their athletes' well-being and perhaps neglect their own uh, ability to deal with stress, the coping strategies, their time to recover from the stresses of the job. Again, it's another another precursor. Depending on the sport, there's things like job insecurity. I mean, if you look at football coaches and football managers, for example, I mean, how many of them last until Christmas? You know, it's the the, the constant job insecurity. Uh, again, it's just another one of those stressors. And just the culture of high performance sport in itself, where things like strength and toughness and grit are all desirable characteristics, right? Because it's high performance sport, and we should be able, we should be gritty. We should be able to push through obstacles. And things like vulnerability and seeking help when we are emotionally exhausted, when we're not feeling like we get, that's not necessarily accepted, not necessarily something that's done a lot in high performance sport. So just the culture of the sport itself, mixed with all of those stresses that go along with it, are the things that typically in, in research settings anyway, we see as those precursors of, of burnout. So maybe Hugh, I'll, I'll kick it over to you from a, an applied setting. Do you see typical patterns that lead someone down that that road towards burnout? I, I feel that um, you know Pete's given a very accurate prescription there, and obviously some of the research that he's produced uh, in terms of the qualitative studies really portrays you know what I can see uh, on occasion within elite sport, which is coaches who are being held responsible for another human being but not only that human being's performance but also their ability to develop that performance and it's nearly as if this magical coach is given a role of responsibility over somebody who should have their own responsibility and it's that uh, feature of uncontrolling or not being able to control the outcome that can lead to additional stress because they can only focus on their own actions as a coach but their performance as a coach has been judged by the performance of another human being. Uh, so that's that's quite an interesting position. For instance, if you were a nurse, you're getting judged maybe in your ability for to heal somebody or a doctor, your ability to heal somebody. But that person might actually be going off and, you know, chain smoking and shooting up heroin or whatever it is, you know, the, the person's doing on top of their condition. So it's... <laughs> It's a it's a stressful position to be disconnected from the thing you're trying to affect. I think the other thing that what Pete said already is you know the pressure of the job, the uncertainty around it. Some of the work that Pete's produced mentions the feeling of entrapment, and I think actually this is something that maybe some of your listeners will reflect on in in terms of their career choices. You know, if you're a sports scientist and you want to get out of that field, where do you go to? If you're an SNC coach or a fitness professional or a nutritionist, what's the other position that you can take up or assume if your field is no longer a viable income? So I think it's like the lack of options, the uncertainty of future funding. And I suppose in a sense, like if you're a good coach, you're successful, you get recruited, you get pulled up, and then you get handed maybe a salary that outweighs what you would get in another, in another position. Therefore, you, you fit into a lifestyle that essentially you can only pay for because of the amount of money you get, but your other options wouldn't be that well paid. So there's this like this cliff edge, a financial cliff edge. So it's like, how, how do I maintain my own personal life, my family's life, and also have a job that's not stressful? So I think those are some of the things that I see people struggling with. And I think the other thing that really bothers me is 
I see a lot of coaches and I look at them and I just go, you're not a healthy person. You know, you're not looking after yourself. And I think I'd like to hear speak Pete speak to that. It's like, how do, from the research point of view, is like, how do we actually combat this? Because I think it's a, a common thing in a lot of professions, a lot of industries, um, especially with entrepreneur, entrepreneurs as well. It's not just a coaching phenomenon of burnout. It, it happens everywhere. And I believe my last point on this long and arduous ramble is that nurses actually experience uh, compassion fatigue, which means they no longer give a shit about the patient because they just they, they've run out of compassion to give or shits to give about the job. I think that's that's kind of interesting that it, this is a a global problem in many professions. It's interesting that you bring up nursing because the burnout research originally stemmed from those types of occupations so nursing there was early research in the 70s from looking at burnout in poverty lawyers these are all relationships where there's a carer and a recipient of care and burnout stemmed from looking at those types of occupations and coaching is exactly the same you hear you just talk there about coaches who you know you look at them and you think you're not very healthy and and it's exactly what we talked about earlier it's you know can we encourage coaches to see themselves as performers and same in the business world same with entrepreneurs that you mentioned can you see yourself as a performer and in doing so what are the skills and attributes that you would want your athletes to have or the people that you are caring for to have and can you embody them yourself so if you want your athletes to have you know good relaxation skills the ability to handle stress and pressure you know all of those coping mechanisms well have you got the same if you want your athletes to be able to relax and take time away from sport because that's important for their mental health world, are you doing the same as well? Or are you all about the, the coaching role? Interesting, you also talked about entrapment as well. This is Tom Radicke's work from uh, sort of early 2000s and the notion of commitment in sport. So Tom Radicke talked about these three different uh, commitment profiles. So there's attraction, entrapment, and low commitment, which is just not being committed at all, in which case you're probably not coaching anymore anyway but commitment was all about seeing the benefits of sport there's a lot of benefits to, to maintaining a coach there are low costs to being a coach there are you know you've invested a significant amount of time in the role but also you see yourself continuing in that role coaches who are entrapped perceive that there are pretty high costs to what they're doing emotionally financially they don't necessarily see the benefits of their role anymore, which is, again, that sort of reduced personal accomplishment and that devaluation. There's a lack of attractive alternatives that Hugh talked about. You know, I've invested so much time in this. What else is it that I can do? And the other people want them to continue in the role. So there's external pressure as well for them to continue what they are doing. Uh, so coaches who display that level of entrapment they're kind of in the role because they feel like they haven't got anything else to do and have invested a lot of time in it. They're the ones that the research says are more susceptible to to burnout. On the entrapment aspect, and I think this also relates to the responsibility piece uh, that both of you mentioned, I'm just wondering when it comes to coaching burnout specifically, is there then a distinction between uh, that and athlete burnout? in the fact that for athletes who burn out, one of the mechanisms that they have to stop their suffering essentially is to quit the sport altogether or to move away from it or to stop training or they go missing for X period of time. Whereas does the responsibility of a coach and people counting off them lead to this cycle of entrapment? They might want to get away, but they have too many people counting on them that it's not as 
easy as an option, perhaps as an athlete. I don't know if that plays out in in practice or not. Yeah, I I suppose it does in a way. Um, one of the things that's come out of some of the research that I've done is this idea that coaches feel like they need to be all things to all people. We call it like a Superman complex, where they don't want to delegate any responsibility. They feel that pressure to you know not only take on the coaching role, but to take on all of the other roles around that. So to think about finances, think about team selection, think about uh, dealing with the press and the media and just feeling the responsibility and the weight of all of that on their shoulders. So I think it is probably a little bit more difficult. And again, this depends on the sport and the context, obviously. But, you know, it is probably a little bit more difficult for them to step away from some of that than it is, for example, for an athlete to say, look, I'm, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I need to take a few days off here. Um, I think it's probably a lot more difficult for coaches to, to, to do that. Again, Hugh, I don't know what your kind of experience of that is. Well, I think elite sport is very interesting, and, and I've said this before, and it's essentially no matter what you achieve, it always looks better if you could achieve it three weeks sooner. And as an athlete, the support system is around you and is you know being aware of of the level of pressure and stress on you and, and will at times you know we've had to say you know you're not allowed to train in in scenarios that i've worked in but i mean can you imagine uh uk sport or a governing body turning up to a bunch of coaches and saying you're not allowed to coach and it's a different role because the, that's an employee um and i suppose you know, if it's a paid if it's a paid coach, which most coaches in a high performance system would be, it's like that's your employee. They're expected to deliver, but part of the issue is that they're going home and thinking and planning. They're always dealing with the same problems. They never get to put the problem down. It's the same with an entrepreneur in that you're worried about your cash flow, you're worried about your business and your network, and you know that problem is always there. And I kind of think of it like there isn't there isn't a set down point for coaches. I think the only time within a, a Olympic and Paralympic cycle is like the two weeks potentially after the Olympic Games or Paralympic Games is, is maybe a bit of a downtime, but it very quickly picks back up again to, right, how's our pathway looking? What's the next four years look like? I don't think there is people coming in and saying to coaches, you need to step off. In fact, in fairness, that's actually my role as a sport and as an applied sports psych in working with coaches is I'm always asking people like, what when are you when are you uh taking some time off what when what are you doing this weekend what what are you doing for recovery and i had my own experience funny enough working as a coach for believe it or not the gaa in county monaghan as a hurling development manager which for pete's reference and people who follow basketball that's like trying to develop basketball at sea (laughs) is the same type of thing as trying to develop hurling in monaghan but I got so burnt out and run down as uh, an employee of the GAA that when I went to the doctors, uh, the doctor looked at me and said, when's the last time you had two days off in a row? And I was like, I-, I can't remember because sport takes place in the hours outside of the nine to five. So you have your nine to five job, then you've got your sport outside that and your, your life doesn't have any boundaries. And she said she thought that junior doctors were bad, but that's horrendous that I couldn't know. I didn't know when I had two days off in a row. So it's, I think it's a good checkpoint for any listeners is like, you know, when's the last time you had two days off in a row where you didn't do any work? And when's the last time, when's the next time you're going to have two days off in a row? Even 
for people as personal trainers or people just in the fitness industry coaching now, you not only have a situation where I know plenty of coaches who said the point in their life where they were probably the least healthy was when they opened a facility themselves and opened a gym and because they're working, like Pete said, 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. is pretty usual, probably six to seven days a week. And that's for at least the first year. That's kind of like the norm for the full period of time. And I think now we're in a situation where people, even when they leave the gym, online coaching is normal. Any of the people that either come to a physical gym or online clients can message people, email people. There's always work to be done. There's ways to do all the marketing and branding outside it. So there's even times where you're not technically at work, you are working uh, for a lot of people. And I suspect that it might creep up on people. I'm not sure what you guys think, but that it's not obvious how much people are doing until they are forced to question. Like you said, Hugh, when someone asked you, when was the last time you had two days off? It's probably only at that point when you actually thought about that and it, it kind of snuck up on, uh, on you in that sense. So uh, I suspect that may be uh, what's going on for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. It's like you said, it's about being always on. So even if you are taking that, that two days off or that day off, it's about getting away from what it is that you're doing. Cause you know, as, as an academic, we have the same thing. So I take a day off, but it's not like I'm a bus driver. You know, I leave the bus at five o'clock, park it in the garage and go home. Like I don't have to think about driving a bus the rest of the day, but as an academic, I have to think about, okay, well, I've got a lecture tomorrow that I've got to prep for. I've got a seminar that I need to, you know, so even if you're not doing things, you're always thinking about it, which is, I guess what you're talking about in terms of both coaches and, you know, people working in the fitness industry, even if you are having that break, you're still, you know, always on. Some of the coaches in the studies that we've done have talked about this idea of burnout spilling over into their home environment. And that's when they kind of notice that their relationships at home are affected. Their work-life balance is all off. You know, when they're at home, they're always on, they're working, they're thinking about this and they don't have time. And they notice that they're not spending as much time with their kids or they're, you know, a little bit snappy at home and it's affecting those relationships. So yeah, absolutely. It's checking in and, and noticing some of that stuff. I think that's, that's really important in recognizing when perhaps we've gone from the normal stresses of the job to experiencing, you know, more burnout like symptoms. You know, Pete, uh, it just struck me there about what you said. I'm curious, is there any research on the effect of social media interaction and burnout? Because it's, I find social media as, as somebody who's maybe trying to promote something, you're smiling, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about my social media activity in the last 24 hours here. <laughs> I'm wondering if this is a loaded question. Mate, <laughs> the gun's always loaded, but I'm not pointing at you, Pete. Um, <laughs> but the, the point the point I'll, I'll make is that, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Pete, in terms of social media, it's like these constant interactions of ping and I have it in my head that I need to reply because somebody asked me in a, a question on social media and I know I know I need to give a quality answer because I you know I've got my reputation at stake. But until that's done, I can't put that out of my head and then I go I'm on my phone and I get another social media uh, insight or, or tag or something that I need to reply to and, and put forward this persona of, you know, I am the psychologist who knows things. I can answer your questions. You know, is, is there anything on burnout and social media interaction? Because I think that might be something that's also even more so not allowing us to get away from 
you know, our, our tasks that we have to do in work or other issues? My honest answer is I'm not sure. I don't know if there's any specific research on the, the role of social media in burnout. What I do think is that it, it, it speaks to that always on mentality where, like you say, you feel obliged to, to reply to, to certain things or to be engaged with the media. The other thing is that, you know, if you think about the role of social media, you know, we talk about uh, coaching and high performance sport before a game is even finished, before a match is even finished, if you're coaching, you know, you've got thousands, millions of people tweeting about how terrible your performance was and you've not even finished yet. And that's that's something that's new. That's something that's fairly recent in terms of the way that social media has developed. You know, you're criticized around there's video clips of your performance, there's video clips of your media interviews after, you know, after competition. And they're all, you know, halfway around the world before you've even finished speaking. That's new and that's an added stress and an added pressure that these coaches in high performance sport have to deal with. And I guess it's the same as, as what you're talking about. It's maintaining that that persona in a way that you want in a carefully curated persona i guess and and kind of having to maintain that all the time it's just an added stress and an added pressure i don't know if there's any specific research on that and in terms of its relation to burnout but it's certainly something that we've seen in the research that coaches have talked about that again always on always having to to reply to these things to present that carefully cultivated image i also wonder with social media does that also have an impact via comparison which is probably one of the most toxic aspects of social media generally, never mind in this context, but the it tying back into coaches looking at other coaches and this idea of, oh, look, they're working so hard, they're super focused, they're obsessed with all what they're doing. They seem to be putting out content or doing work all the time and this whole kind of hustle mentality. And whether that breeds back into the cycle you mentioned earlier, Pete, of like this mental toughness. I can't show that I have a weakness here or I can just push through it. Yeah, because we're all liars on the internet, aren't we? I mean, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, we are, you know, our, our Facebook profiles, our Twitter profiles, they're not really us. They're, they're carefully curated, they present exactly what we want them, what we want people to see about us. Uh, and, you know, that comparison that you mentioned there, Danny, is, is really important. You're looking at what other people are doing. Again, because of the world of social media, you can see and you can digest what other people are doing. It's in the palm of your hand, you know, 24 hours a day. You can constantly see what other people are doing and that looking over your shoulder, seeing what other coaches are doing, uh, seeing what other people are doing and constantly feeling that pressure to have to keep up. And especially in the world of, of high performance sport and sports coaching, one of the things that coaches have talked about a lot is perhaps, I guess you could describe it as mistrust in that environment that, you know, we talked about job insecurity earlier on, but there's always somebody else who's looking to take your job. If you're a head coach, there's always like 10 other people who want that job. And that environment leads to the desire to not show any weakness, to not show any vulnerability, to not say, do you know what? I'm tired. Like, I just, I need a day off. I'm not coping with this. Can I have some help with this aspect? Can I have, you know, can I get some support in on this? We, we tend to not want to do that. And, and you're right. I think that presentation of ourselves on social media, the comparison to other people, certainly it has to have a, an, an impact on that. It, it kind of reminds me of something we've talked about 
in relation to athletes before you and when an athlete gets too tied to their identity how that can become this double-edged sword of yeah it's very motivating in the moment uh, but they're more susceptible to negatives like an, an injury or performance going badly if their whole identity is is tied up in in just sporting performance um, and i'm wondering do you see the same thing then with coaches that they create this identity about themselves and therefore that becomes maladaptive at some point you know i think actually that's mentioned in some of your research pete if i remember rightly uh unidimensional and monodimensional identity and i think the time that you invest as a coach into things means it's very difficult to have another identity and also when you go home to your partner you're using your partner as somebody to help uh, debug uh, and and relax from the, your job so actually you talk about your work a little bit so again even that relationship becomes dealing with your work problems sometimes so i see this as coaches who are very much invested in what they do but uh, like i see this also with uh, practitioners in psychology and snc people they're very invested in what they do and they never get to do anything else Pete, I mean, what are your thoughts on the role of identity from a research perspective? How would you seek to build a better identity potentially within a coach to, to mediate against burnout? Yeah, I think the role of identity is important. Like you say, um, again, there are alternative perspectives on burnout where actually having that singular identity as a coach is, is particularly important. I guess in terms of doing something about that, I'm, I'm very aware that as psychologists, we often talk about what coaches should do you know i i study coaches in elite sport but i am not a coach in elite sport i've got experience of coaching but not at that level so this is all very context dependent and i, I don't want to come across as okay well coaches should do this coaches should do that because it's easy to say right but it's about th connecting with you know what do you value in life what other aspects of your life are important to you is it about being a good parent for example is that something that's really important and if so well can we work on that aspect and separate that from the coaching role how do i develop those other aspects of my identity how do i put time into those other aspects of my identity so that if coaching becomes something that's stressful well that doesn't necessarily mean that my entire life is stressful because i've got this aspect and this aspect and this aspect as well so like I say, it's, it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say that coaches should do that when we've just talked about all of the pressures and stresses that they're under. But can, can people do that? Can people connect with, with what's really important to them in different domains of their life? So is it important to live a healthy lifestyle, for example? You know, am I making sure that I'm taking care of that? Am I make, making sure that I'm getting enough rest and recovery and going to the gym? Am I being a good husband or wife or uh, father or, or mother or whatever? And Hugh, you'd probably do the same thing with athletes, wouldn't you? You know, how do you invest in other areas of your identity to stop you becoming this kind of singular, obsessive coach where everything is wrapped up in what it is that you're doing? And if one thing goes wrong in what you're doing, then that means your whole life crumbles. It, I mean, it is a common thing with athletes where you don't want a monodimensional identity. You want to have multiple identities. So I suppose what I say to athletes who have are very monodimensional I, I say to them you're you're like a, a banjo you're hollow in the inside and then i laugh and see do they get the joke or not but actually what, what i do is, is i say you're like a banjo with six strings and if one of those strings is is really good brilliant you know that's that's maybe your sport but if all the other strings are 
uh, not working or broken, uh, then you're you're not a good banjo and you're not going to play a good tune. And it's kind of like in life you need to have a number of other strings to your banjo because nobody wants a broken banjo string where it's not going to, uh, you know, you're not going to play a good tune on that. But the, the thing about that is if you now, and I'm sure we've talked about social media as a listener, if you now take out your Instagram, please continue listening to the podcast. Um, it is Sigma Nutrition after all. But if you take out your Instagram <laughs> and look at your Instagram and look at the last 20 pictures and then start categorizing them as what, what is that value or what is that activity that I'm portraying to the world? It's quite interesting because if what when I've done this with athletes, it's all their sport. And then when I've done this with some other people, you know, it's basically all pictures of pints and kebabs. And it's like, what what is important in your life? You know, this is it. Pints and kebabs are all your sport. And what variety, if this was actually a true reflection of you, what things would be in your top 20 pictures on Instagram? So I think it's a good good way of like working with somebody to help them realize that they need a bit more variety within their life and, and that, you know, that. 20 images last 20 images on instagram is a really good way of doing that and um, for people who are active on on instagram earlier pete we we talked about some of those potential factors that could lead to a coach becoming burned out and obviously many coaches face some of these same external things but presumably their susceptibility varies among individuals why is it or what type of differences do we see in some people who could be put under similar levels of stress, let's say, from their job as a coach, but may not succumb to the same degree of burnout or at least experience it with the same degree of intensity? When I talk about stress, I always like to use um, the analogy of a seesaw. So if you imagine on one side of the seesaw are all of the demands that you experience. So that's all the things we talked about before, the long hours, the pressures, the stresses, the cultural high performance sport. And on the other side of this seesaw are your coping resources, your ability to cope with those demands. Um, so that might be things like your own psychological skills, your own ability to relax, uh, friends and family, social support, all of those types of things. So when that seesaw tips one way or the other, usually when the demands become heavier than the you know our ability to cope with it that's when we experience stress and you know as we talked about burnout is perhaps a response to that chronic experience of stress right there's, there's two things that we can do there's two things that we can we can work on here we can work on removing some of those demands or we can work on developing our coping resources so coaches with you know many many more coping resources many different ways of coping with stress so they have that support structure in place they're able to delegate some of their work they're able to be a little bit vulnerable and take some of that time off those are the coaches that will experience a little bit less stress the other way of looking at it is the way that we perceive that stress you know think about it we've all experienced stress before sometimes that can have a positive motivating effect you know if you think we've all been in a situation where we've had like an essay due in or three essays due in at the end of the week we haven't done any work and that's stressful right but we perceive that as right this is a challenge i've got to get this done and suddenly we're able to work a lot harder the alternative response to that is to think oh shit you know i've got these three essays in and to panic and to be anxious about it and to withdraw from it and just shut down and pretend it's not happening right so the way that we perceive that stress that we experience is 
again, a defining factor in how we might respond to it. Do we respond uh, with anxiety and it just gets worse and then we experience that burnout or do we see it as a challenge and it motivates us? Most of the time, that chronic stress isn't good for us and we respond in ways that aren't particularly helpful. But as I say, you know, the, the, the way that coaches respond to it, the way that we perceive that stress that we're under might determine whether we end up experiencing burnout or, or, or not. If we focus in on some of those coping strategies, uh, I think it's worth exploring coping strategies that are actually beneficial versus what people might presume is a coping strategy but may be uh, detrimental or maladaptive in some format. And actually, I want to take one of the lines that I uh, made a note of from one of your papers, Peaks, it particularly stuck out to me, and I think it will resonate with people. You said that coaches might choose to suppress emotional difficulties in order to maintain a mask of mental toughness and stoicism. So again, two things that people may seem as something that's beneficial becomes problematic. So how do you make that distinction of a coping strategy that is beneficial versus someone having a behavior that could become problematic. We know from the research literature that certain types of coping strategies are perhaps more effective than others. So uh, there's what's called problem-focused coping, which is actually trying to deal with the stressor itself. So if there's something that's causing us stress, okay, can we actually tackle that and handle that and perhaps remove that stressor? So again, it's taking stressors from, from one side of that seesaw that we talked about earlier, trying to maintain that balance. Other types of coping strategies are emotion-focused coping strategies. So if we're anxious, we try and deal with the anxiety. Uh, if we're sad, we try and deal with the sadness. If we're upset, we try and deal with the upset. That might be beneficial in the short term, but actually you know, the problem is still there. And then there's avoidance coping which funnily enough actually comes up quite a lot in the literature pretending that the stressor isn't there which is i guess what we're talking about that putting a mask on it and just pretending that everything's okay and trying to power through trying to show that mental toughness when we know that everything's not all right you know from a practical perspective we can see why those things might not necessarily be useful but from a, a research perspective as well we know that emotion focused coping and that avoidance coping actually leads to less positive outcomes so it leads to more anxiety, it leads to burnout, or at least to an increased risk of burnout, let's say. So we can look at it like that. There's problem-focused coping strategies dealing with the problem, emotion-focused coping strategies dealing with the actual resulting emotions, and then avoidance is just pretending it isn't there. And if we kind of think about, okay, well, how can we address the actual problem? That's probably going to be the most beneficial way of, of of dealing with some of that stress. I don't know. Again, Hugh, from a kind of practical perspective, what would you what would you say to that? Well, Pete, I think the way that you've um, categorized those, or the researchers categorized those as problem focused or avoidance and things like that, is really important. Um, from an applied perspective, you know, I can think of this as long term versus short term interventions, and going for a pint might be a short-term solution to stress but in the long term repeated going for a pint to deal with your stress is is not a good solution and is going to cause further spirals potentially and again it depends on how you go for a pint are you going for a pint to discuss and chat with your friends in a relaxed manner or are you going for a pint to sit in the corner by yourself very different ways of dealing with something is the intervention that you take a, a short-term thing to get you over this little bit of stress or little little tight spot that you're in? Or is this a, a long-term beneficial support for stress? And I think the other thing that 
is really interesting is you talk about stoicism and mental toughness. There's a paper in, uh, if, if you look it up, it's PTSD in veterans and mental toughness is the search terms. But what's really interesting is that veterans um, who have an idea that mental toughness is a desirable characteristic are more likely to suffer from PTSD. And this speaks to what Pete talks about, which is people who overly emphasize the toughness and grit aspect of, of their character as a desirable characteristic are going to suffer in other ways because they don't have that outlet and again stoicism is wildly popular and like every tom dick and harry is quoting marcus aurelius at the moment but there's a paper which actually talks about how agrarian values and stoic values are really good at coping but uh, they actually reduce the likelihood that somebody will ask for help in a situation because they just have to suffer so you know it's all right having a quality but or an approach but how does that approach um have a downside and every approach will have a downside so it's been smart enough as an applied person to think about what's the downside of my coping mechanism and what's the upside of it and is this a long-term or short-term coping mechanism you know i think there's a bit of an interaction effect going on there as well and we talked earlier about the idea of um coaches having different commitment profiles so either being entrapped or feeling like they're trapped in the role and coaches being highly committed to, to the role and just some some preliminary findings so this is um i presented this data as a a poster at a conference we haven't written the paper up yet but for coaches who were entrapped in their role so again high costs low benefits low attractive alternatives didn't see what else they you know they could do felt pressure to stay in the role for those coaches high levels of 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 what we call grit were actually less beneficial to them uh in terms of in terms of their burnout outcomes for coaches who are just highly committed to the role so are quite happy in the role they're doing it because they want to do it actually you know high levels of those traits that we think of as positive can be beneficial can be maybe protective against burnout so we have to think about you know those long-term and short-term coping strategies that Hugh mentioned but we have to delve a little bit deeper into okay well what is this coach experiencing you know are they like highly committed in a, a, a positive way or are they committed because they are stuck in the role and the type of coping strategy that we might use might be very different for those two different types of coaches yeah pete you know it, it's interesting that uh, the way that somebody perceives their stressor and situation mediates the outcomes depending on those sort of approaches they take one of the things that i've been thinking on after reading some of your research is the idea that you know appraisals is one way to deal with stress but actually that that doesn't take that's the cognitive process and it doesn't take into account maybe the biological features that are underpinning such as lack of sleep nutrition etc uh, and fitness and one of the things that we've done from an applied perspective is looked at the work of robert saplosky um, who wrote why zebras don't get ulcers and then we've integrated that into our cultural aspect for our athletes and what this conversation has me wondering is should we be integrating that into our staff but the key cultural aspects that we're trying to put in and build in with athletes are social support and outlet for frustration signs monitoring signs that things uh, can get better because if i want to if i want to create a stressful situation i would tell you things are getting worse or i would tell you you've no control and don't know when it's going to end and tell you things are getting worse 
and then also social isolation. So if I want to isolate, or if I isolate you, you're going to be more likely to be uh, stressed. And if you think of a coach's role, it's very isolating because you can't turn around and talk to the athlete about how you're you're suffering from this burnout because the athlete's going to go like, he's supposed to be helping me and he can't help himself. But then if you think of the, the time commitments they put in, again, they're being isolated from friends and family potentially because they're being overworked and therefore their social circle decreases. So how do you create social support within a coaching uh, group would be very critical for reducing burnout. But there's other points in there with Saplowski's work about how do you reduce stress and I think they're, they're critical from a biological perspective of dealing with burnout and not just the cognitive aspect of that coach's values and how they perceive and cope with the situation. Pete, have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, I was just going to say that fits in really nicely with uh, some of Altfeld's work on, on burnout. Whereas rather than looking at the stress in itself as as one of the precursors to burnout, they focus more on recovery. So it's not necessarily just the ongoing stress that's the problem. It's the time and ability to recover from that, uh, which speaks to exactly what you said. You know, you kind of monitor that maybe with athletes, but could we do a better job of monitoring almost, I guess, enforcing that recovery time for, for coaches as well? Again, I don't know how easy or difficult that would be to do with some of the high-performance coaches that, that I know. Um, well, one of the things I was going to ask off the back of that is, are there set evidence-based treatments, so to speak, for this that are already established? Or at the moment, is it still trying to piece this together mechanistically and do some of the things that Hugh has just mentioned in practice? Or do we actually see clear benefit for uh, interventions that seem to resolve some of this issue? You know, there's a lot of research into coach burnout. It's a it's a, a, a big area of research and coaching stress has been an area of research for a, a lot of years now. What is missing perhaps is the intervention research. You know, how do we how do we deal with this? How do we make it better? There are a few studies that I can think of that have proposed interventions. There's a couple that have looked at mindfulness-based interventions. So a researcher called Kat Longshaw, she put together a, a mindfulness-based intervention for coaches that looked at how incorporating mindfulness, and it was only kind of brief mindfulness um, sessions, how that could have a positive impact on coaches' well-being. And another study that looked at the same sort of thing. So there is preliminary evidence that mindfulness-based interventions can have positive outcomes uh, for coaches in terms of their, their well-being. Other than that, I think you're right. I think it's a case of kind of piecing some of those things together. What do we already know from the psych literature about coping with, with stress and managing burnout and recovery? And how can we incorporate that into uh, working with our coaches? But I think there's probably multiple levels at which we can intervene so yes, there's things that coaches can do, absolutely. Uh, and the role of, of psychs, you know, is, is, is important as well. So there's those mindfulness interventions that I talked about. There's developing all of the psych skills that coaches would want their athletes to have. Well, can we, again, I mentioned this earlier, can we encourage coaches to see themselves as performers as well? To reflect, is my response, are my responses to stress normal or have they changed? Uh, am I experiencing stress in a different way to what I was before? So that self-reflection, that self-awareness is really important. Developing those support systems as well. Um, I always talk to coaches about, you know, you need to find somebody from outside of your sport to talk to, you know, because I think having somebody either from a different sport or outside of sport altogether is, is really important, just in terms of being able to vent, and being able to rant, being able to talk about some of those things and, and feel safe in doing so, sh showing that vulnerability and feeling safe to be able to do that. As much as 
coach-based interventions and things that coaches can do are important. You know, we talked about the culture of high-performance sport earlier, and I, I guess the way the way they always um, describe this is: if I'm getting shot at, right? If there's a sniper on the other side of the the you know the the park or whatever, and I'm getting shot at. Yes, being mindful and being able to relax might help me be able to make better decisions in the moment, but I want the guy to stop shooting at me, right? That's what's going to really help. So at an organizational level, if the mental well-being of coaches is really important, if the mental health of coaches is really important, then it's organizations are duty-bound to help with some of this stuff, to give coaches the time and the space to recover, to encourage recovery, to provide a sustainable workload, you know, more reasonable expectations. You know, you can't expect somebody to thrive mentally if they are going to be sacked for losing the first two games of the season. You know, so organizations are kind of duty bound to do this, to look after the mental well-being of their coaches. And I think that there's more that, that, that we could do um, to, to make that happen and to kind of push that agenda. Just as you bring up some of the culture around certain organizations, it also ties into both when earlier you guys mentioned isolation, but also that if someone's entrapped within a role where maybe they can't see how to progress from that or they feel they're getting underpaid relative to their work or maybe there's some unfair conditions, all these things that could have a negative impact. I'm wondering when we think of the culture of organizations, uh, do we see differences therefore between certain groups of people so as two of the most clear examples if we take women working in coaching roles within elite sport they're probably at least depending on the sport and depending on the organization of course may be represented much less so they're going into a workplace where they're um, more outnumbered by their male colleagues or maybe there's just been a culture within that organization that doesn't have this the same uh, bias in in each direction, or similarly, we we have clear issues that thankfully now have been more brought up in, in the recent past around coaching roles, for example, in the English Premier League or the Football League, around how little uh, black coaches get even interviews, never mind roles. We see the same thing in the NFL, where we have seventy percent of the players being black and like three head coaches, I think, something like that. Does that even add further to these stresses related to work? Does it even lead to more of this feeling of entrapment and does that tie back into the culture that maybe some of these organizations have to look at yes i think is the, is the answer to that question in, in terms of again in terms of the research i know we we wrote a paper recently on um uh women's high performance coaching uh and some of the stresses that women experience in that environment uh that are perhaps unique uh, to that, and you, you kind of spoke to some of them earlier. There's that culture of of high performance sport that is very male dominated. It's a very masculine culture, uh, and a lot of the a lot of the characteristics that are needed to survive in that environment are seen as typically male characteristics. Uh, so there are a lot of barriers to women in high performance sport. In terms of the research on black and and, and kind of minority coaches. Again, I'm not sure whether any whether anybody specifically looked at those at those barriers and their experiences of those coaches, but absolutely there is evidence to say that, you know, as you say, um, they are vastly underrepresented in coaching roles, at board level roles, uh, support staff roles as well. So there are a number of barriers to minorities, to women accessing those types of roles, um, and that can only add to the, the the stresses and pressures once you get into those roles as well. 
because the microscope is on you far more i think if you are a person of color or if you're a woman um in high performance sport i think to add to that pete is that you, you talked about the idea of the sniper and the mindfulness not being effective but you know someone's ability to speak up in an environment is going to be influenced by how safe they feel and supported that they can speak up without any undue consequences and i think this is i think it's an issue within sport but I think it's also compounded by people who maybe don't feel as if they are supported because they can be unfairly caricatured, if that's a word, or misrepresented because of their uh, sex, race, nationality, skin color, you know, whatever, whatever um, feature. Just to round out this topic of coaching burnout, maybe as a quick couple of minute overview, and I'll go to each of you maybe separately, what is one or two of the kind of key things that you would want listeners to come away from this conversation understanding about coaching burnout? And maybe I'll start with you, Pete, and then I'll come to you afterwards, you. Okay, so for, for me, I think it's about recognizing what burnout is and when we're experiencing it. Um, we talked early on about it being more than just a regular stress that we experience. Um, it's that ongoing syndrome of just not really caring about what we're doing anymore, feeling that emotional exhaustion and kind of disengaging from from what we're doing. Um, and I think for, for your listeners, I think that self-awareness and reflection is probably the most important thing that they can do because we get so caught up in in our daily lives and in what we're doing in our work that we don't stop to recognize when our responses to stress are abnormal right because we all experience stress you know we all deal with it in various ways but it's having the self-awareness and being able to reflect enough to notice that okay well actually i'm responding to this in a way that's different to normal i'm taking this out you know, I'm taking this home with me. Um, I'm more irritable than I normally am when the same stresses are occurring. So having that self-reflection, um, that ability to reflect that self-awareness, being able to recognize when it's just a little bit different to the ordinary stress, I think that's probably the most important skill that that, that we can develop. Brilliant. Uh, Hugh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. I suppose what I would take uh, from this is probably the biopsychosocial model of trying to deal with this in that psychologically I can modify my thoughts, I can pursue my values and, and evaluate my life in terms of how I'm uh, living up to my values within my family, within my job, within my friendship groups and my hobbies or whatever it is I want to achieve. So cognitively align there. But then from the biological approach, you know, your sleep, your nutrition uh, are vital within that. Um, and then your health, that you know, your physical activity as a as a reduction in stresses, um, are going to be vital as well. So do you have that biological sort of cape uh, on? Because like if you're getting your sleep, your nutrition, and your physical exercise, that's going to help you moderate any effects of stress. And then lastly, the biopsycho social model is the social aspect of it. Don't underestimate the power that connections to other humans are. Indeed, humans are the only things that we really connect with in the world that let us know that we exist because of how they interact with us. And it's that connection and interaction that I think allows us to reduce our stress. So that would be my takeaway from this. 
you both have a new podcast and I'm sure many people who have just listened to this conversation will be very interested to hear about that. So maybe can you just describe what the podcast is and what you're trying to achieve with the podcast? What's the goal of it? And then maybe some more information for people who might find that useful to listen into. Uh, I'm, I just want to say that Pete won't agree with this, but it is the goal. <laughs> we do have it written down, but the goal is that one day we will get to interview Eric Cantona. Um, and that is the sole <laughs> aim for this entire podcast, regardless of whatever garbage he's about to say. Pete, what are your views on why we're doing this podcast? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the dream, right? That's the ultimate goal is to have Eric Cantona uh, on our on our podcast. Um, no, seriously, though, it, a podcast called 80% Mental, and it's about trying to demystify, I guess, um sports psychology and we talk about all of the mental aspects of sport performance i think what we do slightly differently to a lot of the podcasts that are out there is that we start each episode by asking a particular question about sports psychology we have a theme for each episode uh we ask a question and we get ex experts in to try and answer that question so questions like um you know what's the deal with mindfulness so we had uh dr joe mannion come in and talk all about mindfulness he's a, a kind of world-renowned expert on the subject you know what is anxiety and how do i deal with that um and we, again we had a, a couple of sports sites come in to to you know explain that and look at the research um but we also have a little bit of fun with it as well. And we try and do things in in some slightly different ways. And Hugh and I have had a lot of fun recording the first series. Uh, and I hope that comes across to our, our listeners as well. Um, the first series is all about the kind of nuts and bolts of sports psychology. Uh, and then, you know, uh, later series are going to kind of get under the bonnet a little bit uh, and explore things in a little bit more depth and detail. For anyone that wants to connect with you guys on social media or in any other format, is there anywhere you'd like to direct their attention to go on the internet? So for me, it's probably Twitter is the best. And my Twitter handle is at Pete Olushaga, and I'll spell it O-L-U-S-O-G-A. Um, or you can tweet me at EPM podcast, which is the 80% mental podcast uh, Twitter handle as well. For me, you can just go to the EPM podcast that Pete has just uh, said on Twitter. And then my handle is in the description. And so with that, guys, let me say thank you for taking the time out to come and talk to me today and for both your time, but also the great conversation. And uh, I look forward to listening to many of your podcasts in the future. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Danny. Um, keep up the good work as always. We we are a little bit inspired by your uh, podcast and the level of success that you've had, and also your your interview skills. That's something we're hoping to uh, emulate a bit. That was our conversation. I really, really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I had having this conversation and learning from both Pete and Hugh. It's an incredibly important conversation in that it's something that can be often overlooked or not talked about, at least, to the level that it should. So hopefully you find this insightful, whether you just found it interesting or whether this is an issue that has affected you in some manner directly or that you're hopefully now in a better position to prevent. So I would love to hear some of your feedback on this and maybe you actually know someone who might benefit from hearing this. And if you do, 
then please consider sending this episode on to them and saying, hey, I think you might actually really get something from this given the content that's in here. So if you want the show notes this episode, they are going to be over at sigmanutrition.com slash episode 350. There you can get transcripts to the episodes. You can get links to anything we mentioned throughout today's discussion, including some of the publications that Peter has put out on this particular topic. I will link up to where you can find the guys on social media. I'll link up to the podcast that they have just launched, as well as the previous appearances on this podcast that Hugh has been on discussing all things related to sports psychology. So that's all over at sigmanutrition.com slash episode 350. And that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for listening in. Please consider sharing this episode around the internet and letting people know about it. Make sure you've hit subscribe on whatever app you are currently listening on. And I hope you tune in to the next episode of the podcast. And until then, I hope you have a great week. Take care. So we hope that you enjoyed myself and Pete uh, discussing coaching burnout with Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition Radio. If you want to check Danny out further, please do go to sigmanutrition.com. Check out his podcast, his Sigma statements, the articles and services offered by Danny. But like, let's be honest, Danny's podcast is legendary. Um, Well over 300 episodes. I think he's maybe close to 400 episodes interviewing a range of experts of of people across all topics, nutrition, performance and health. So uh, we strongly endorse Danny Lennon and uh, the work he does uh, within providing information into people's lovely ears. But don't forget to come back and listen to us as well.